Well, again, it'll be helpful if you keep open the passage we just read, Revelation 21, verses 1 to 8, as we continue our theme for, for today, all things new, all things new. And this morning we thought about two of the things that this passage tells us about the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, we thought about the world in which we now live, how it's going to be made new. Uh, we, we understand that heaven is coming to earth and so as wonderful as it is to realise that if we die now, if we die today or tomorrow as believers, it's wonderful to know that we will go immediately to the presence of Christ as some of our loved ones have already done. But, but beyond that time when Christ returns, he is bringing heaven to earth. And so we thought this morning about how we will live in this world, on this earth and enjoy the things of this earth as we've never enjoyed them before. Uh, the, the natural beauty of this world, uh, the experiences of living and working and worshipping in this world, God, uh, God's world made new. That was the first thing that we thought about this morning. And then we also thought about how God is going to remove from this world uh, the difficult things, the, the painful things. Verse 4 here uh, describes to us the things that we will no longer experience in the new heavens and the new earth. Death shall be no more, uh, John tells us. Uh, Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And so when we think of heaven, we're to understand it in terms of the things that cause us to suffer now. Going away, never to be suffered or experienced again. Death itself, no longer a part of this world. And so this evening we want to look at three more aspects of what it means when it says here in God's word that he is making all things new. Uh, And the third thing we want to say about this, this, this future that awaits us, this new creation, is that in this new creation God's covenant will be fulfilled. God's covenant will be fulfilled. All the descriptions here of Christ and his people together in heaven are described in covenantal Language. Uh, look, for example, at chapter 21, verse 2. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And we focused on this idea of the wedding, of the, the, the marriage supper of the Lamb uh, a few weeks ago. We thought about this picture quite in depth of the church here described as the bride. Uh, and we see the other main picture of the church here in Revelation as well. In these last few chapters, the church is described as a city, a city. He says in verse 2, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. And both of those pictures, friends, both the church as a bride and the church as a city. And we'll think much more about that picture of the city next week. But these are covenantal pictures. This is covenantal language. This is the language that we see all the way through the Bible. Uh, The prophets often rebuked the nation of Israel for being a faithless bride. I was just reading in my own devotions, it was either this morning or yesterday, uh, from Ezekiel. And there's a whole uh, long, long section in Ezekiel chapter 16 of, of God's people being described in very graphic language as a faithless bride. As one who has not been faithful to the vows, the covenantal vows that she made. And yet God always remained faithful. 
And Jesus Christ, the representative of God's people, always remained faithful. And, and so in Christ, we, we are being made into this beautiful, faithful bride that we thought about a few weeks ago. That's covenantal language. And then to the language of a city of Jerusalem is covenantal language. If Israel were God's chosen, was God's chosen nation in the Old Testament, Jerusalem was God's chosen city. It was the city where temple worship took place. It was the city where Israel's king had his throne, where the, where the people would gather every year for those feasts. The, the faithful pilgrims would gather into the one place, the one city. And so this picture of the city is used here at the conclusion of Revelation, friends, uh, to describe God's covenant people brought together uh, in the new heavens and the new earth. The church is the new Jerusalem. Again, this is one of the reasons why I want you to be discerning and careful uh, about some of the things that are circulating at the moment. Uh, I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago as well. Uh, with all that's going on in the Middle East, there are uh, lots of different points of view being offered by Christian preachers or uh, Christian YouTubers about what's going on in the Middle East. And some people think we need to be funding the, the building of a new temple in Jerusalem. And um, some people are getting all excited that this might finally be happening, depending on what happens next in the Middle East. That's all incredibly misguided. Revelation is not telling us about the need to, as we'll see next week, the city that it describes is just is humongous. It fills the earth. You couldn't possibly literally build this city. And there is no need for us to build a temple like the one that was in Jerusalem in the days of Solomon. Jesus Christ has brought temple worship to an end. So again, this is symbolic picture language. When we hear uh, of a new Jerusalem, this is the church. This is God's people from across the ages and from across nations gathered together. And notice verse 3. Verse 3, we didn't really touch on verse 3 this morning, but I'm coming to it now. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Again, that is covenantal language. Compare Revelation 21 verse 3 to Leviticus 26 verse 11. Back in the, the heart of the Old Testament law, a book, Leviticus, maybe a book that we, we, we don't pay much attention to. We think all oh, those laws, like some of the laws we just read in Exodus tonight, we don't need to worry about that. Well, listen to what Leviticus 26 11 says. I will make my dwelling among you. And it goes on to say, I will walk among you. And will be your God and you shall be my people. And so there's the thread of the covenant friends from the very earliest days of the Old Testament all the way through to Revelation. This has always been God's promise. I will dwell among you. I will walk among you. We will be together. And all those words in your Bible, dwelling, tabernacle, temple, they're all very closely related words. It's the idea of God coming amongst his people, his presence with his people. Uh, and literally God says here, I will dwell with you. I will walk among you. I will be your God. 
That idea of God walking with his people takes us all the way back to Eden. There's that heartbreaking verse in Genesis chapter 3. Right after Adam and Eve take the fruit and fall into sin. It says they heard the sound of the Lord God as he was what? Walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the implication of that verse is that that's the way it had been. That before the fall, God would just come and be with Adam and Eve in the garden. In in the dwelling place as it was then. That sanctuary of paradise. We lost that when our first parents sinned. But the message of the whole Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, is that we will walk with God. That we will dwell with him forever. Remember what God said to Abraham. Genesis 17 verse 1. I am God Almighty. Walk before me. And be blameless. And after centuries of promises on God's part. And failure on the part of his people. We arrive at the New Testament. And John says. <coughs> chapter 1. Uh, John chapter 1. He says the word, Jesus, God become a man, became flesh and what? Dwelt among us, tabernacled among us, walked among us. And then we come to Revelation 21, the very end of our Bibles. And again, we see the same language. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his God and God himself will be with them as their God. The new heavens and the new earth, friends, will witness God's covenant fulfilled. And this is the main event of heaven, friends. Here's, here's the best thing about it. It's, it's, it's the most important thing about it. That it's the place where God's covenant promises are fully realized and where we will be with Christ. Where we will dwell with our God. In heaven, there will be no more barriers to that. Yes, through Christ, we we don't have to offer um, uh, animal sacrifices. We don't have to go to certain places. We don't have to observe certain festivals. Through Christ, we can come immediately into the presence of God in heaven and offer our worship. But still, there's that there's that distance. We're on the earth. God is in uh, Christ. Our, our Savior is seated in heaven with the angels and with the departed saints. We're not all together physically. Yes, our worship at its best should elevate us spiritually and take us into the very throne room of heaven. But there's still this separation. As we thought about this morning, we're separated from our departed loved ones. We're we're separated physically from the Lord Jesus Christ. We're separated from the angels. In the new heavens and the new earth, friends, will be no more of that separation. We will dwell with Christ In the immediate presence of God forever. When Solomon finally built his temple. One of the things that the temple furnishings did. And to some degree the tabernacle furnishings did this as well. And we'll maybe see a little bit of that as we read through Exodus. But certainly the temple of Solomon. One of the things that it did. It reminded the people of Eden. It reminded. It very uh, intentionally reminded the people of paradise. The two main doors leading into the, the sanctuary of Solomon's temple were covered in gold. 
but they had the images of cherubim, of, of fiery angels on the doors. And they also had palm trees, palm branches depicted on those doors. And so as you opened the temple doors, it was like you were pulling back beautiful golden trees. And then you would walk into this sanctuary of gold. And all of that, friends, was to tell the people that's how it was in the beginning. That's how it will be in the presence of God. Paradise. Splendid glory. Too bright for the the human eye to see almost. That's what heaven is. It's the glorious, near, immediate presence of Christ with his people. And if you know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, then that's all you need to know about heaven. Again, I would encourage you to read the book that I recommended this morning. It, it, might, it might spark a few questions in your mind as to exactly what life in heaven will be like. We, we thought a bit about it this morning. But there's a sense in which I don't want to go too far in suggesting what we'll be doing day to day in heaven. We, we don't really know. But we know the most important thing. We will be with Christ. We will be in his immediate, physical, glorious presence. And we will be resurrected and glorious as well and we will be free of our sin and there will be no barriers between us and our saviour and we will see the face of the one who loved us and gave himself for us on the cross and if you're a christian this evening i don't really need to sell heaven to you any more than that simply hear that you will be with christ that's all you need to know Is Christ enough for you this evening? You hear people saying all the time all kinds of flippant suggestions about what heaven means for them. Wasn't there that song years ago, heaven is a half pipe? A half pipe being something that skateboarders use. You see in football stadiums, people have banners up like Manchester is my heaven or uh, things to that effect. People have sung endless songs about their idea of heaven. Heaven is being with Christ. Is Christ enough for you? Is that your idea of heaven? To see your saviour. To have an opportunity face to face to say thank you. And to praise him and to enjoy him forever. So that's the first thing uh, tonight. The, well the third thing today that we've discovered about this new heavens and the new earth. That we'll, it will see God's covenant fulfilled The fourth thing to notice about it is that it is a place where God's people will be refreshed. God's people will be refreshed. Look again at verse 6. Jesus says he is the Alpha and the Omega. And of course, Alpha and Omega are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. Jesus explains it himself here. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Uh, And so he's saying, speaking there of his sovereignty over all things from the first to the last. And then he says as well in verse 6, To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. In the ancient world, particularly in the Middle East and the Mediterranean, It was crucially important that you knew where you were going to get your water each day. It's important that you knew where your nearest water supply was because of the dreadfully hot climate. 
And of course, there's still that great concern. We, we, we take it for granted. I mean, you could just have opened your mouth uh, in the half hour before our prayer meeting tonight and stood outside. You'd have certainly had your thirst quenched. But in other parts of the world, the world uh, this is a concern. You have to make sure you know where your water is coming from. And the headlines have been dominated this past week or two about concern for access to water in Gaza as the situation escalates there. And so Jesus uses this picture of thirst needing quenched to describe heaven for us. It's that, it's that experience of you've been so thirsty and now at last you have your thirst satisfied. Maybe boys and girls you can think back to warm summer days a few months ago. And you were just longing for mum or dad to bring you an ice lolly. Or to bring you a nice cold drink as you lay out in the garden or play games or whatever you were doing. And that, that, that feeling of finally getting that water or that nice icy drink into your mouth. So satisfying, so refreshing. Heaven is like that. Heaven is like what we were singing earlier in our psalm. Psalm 65 or Psalm 107. Of trekking through desert wastes. Not being satisfied and finally coming across a source of, of water. Jesus used this language, you remember, when he spoke to the woman at the well. John 4, 14. Whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Our time is full of thirsty souls. Our nation, our world is full of thirsty souls. And only in Christ is that thirst quenched. That thirst for security. That thirst perhaps for forgiveness. That thirst for peace. Peace of mind. Peace with God. Peace in our souls. People are searching for those things. In sport. In sex. In money. And, and work, whatever it might be. Christ says, I will, give, uh, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. That's heaven, refreshment at last for thirsty souls. But then notice uh, another way, another promise God makes here for his people. Uh, look at verse seven. He says, the one who conquers will have this heritage. This heritage of refreshment. This heritage of the new earth. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God. And he will be my son. Again notice the covenantal language. I will be his God. He will be my son. And those words the one who conquers. Again we're seeing here. We're going to see this over the next few weeks. All the threads of revelation. uh, Coming together at the end here. Uh, The one who conquers is a phrase that we've seen all throughout the book. We saw it particularly in the first uh, two or three chapters of Revelation as Jesus wrote the letters to the seven churches. And to each of the seven churches, Jesus made a promise to the one who conquers. It was a different promise each time, but every time it was addressed to the one who conquers. Revelation 3 verse 12, for example, Jesus says to the church in Philadelphia, The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. And Jesus makes similar promises to all the other 
uh, six churches as well. And so again we see these words reappearing right at the climax of the book. And the word conquers there, it's actually the same word in in, in the noun form in the Greek uh, for the Greek goddess uh, Nike. That's where the sports brand gets its inspiration. I'm sure most of you in your house somewhere you have uh, a piece of clothing or a trainer or something that has the little Nike swish on it. Well, this is where it comes from. It's the idea of being victorious, of, of conquering. And again, you see, this is one of the themes that we've seen all throughout Revelation. That Jesus is constantly encouraging and exhorting his church to just persevere. To just keep going. So that you make it to the end as one who conquers. This is again why we should reject some of the more complex and fanciful notions that people have about Middle Eastern politics and how it relates to the book of Revelation. Middle Eastern politics in 2023 is of no help to Christians 2,000 years ago who were feeling the pressure of the Roman Empire, who were feeling the pressure of their families and and their societies to to give up their Christian faith, to just go back to living the way they've been living, worshipping the way they've been worshipping. Jesus says, don't give up. Persevere. If you conquer, here's what's waiting for you. Refreshment. Life in the new heavens and the new earth. He says, I will give them the heritage of a son. He says in verse 7, I will be his God and he will be my son. Uh, Girls and ladies, you're not to be offended by the word son there. Uh, The way our politically correct culture gets upset nowadays when someone says mankind instead of humankind or policeman instead of police officer. In John's world, the inheritance of a firstborn son was was a far bigger inheritance than the inheritance that went to anyone else in the family. So you wanted to have the inheritance of the firstborn son. And what he's saying here is you will have the best inheritance. You'll have the inheritance that everybody always wanted. But we will only inherit it if we persevere. The one who conquers will inherit the new heavens and the new earth. The one who conquers temptation. The one who conquers the pressures and hatred of this world. This is where faith is needed, friends. This is where perseverance in our faith is needed. It takes persevering faith to keep believing in the coming of Christ when our society would tell us that it's nonsense. It takes persevering faith to keep believing in what the Bible says about sex and marriage in a culture that treats them both with such disrespect. It takes persevering faith to keep believing That Jesus is going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. And that death and sickness and suffering will be no more. When all we see every day is a world full of those things. But dear friends, Jesus says, he makes this promise to you. The one who conquers will have this heritage. This covenantal heritage. If you can just hold on. And if you can just keep believing, and if you can just keep plotting, then this new world that we've been thinking about today will be yours and will be ours. And of course, as we persevere, as we have to 
conquer temptation and suffering day after day, the Holy Spirit is with us to help us to do those things. Have you been growing weary of doing good, dear friend? Have you been growing weary of keeping up your Christian witness, perhaps in an increasingly hostile workplace or in a class full of other boys and girls that don't believe in the Bible or don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you been growing weary of doing good and just what seem to be the mundane tasks that God has given you for this season of life that no one else sees and no one else gives you any credit for? Keep going. Keep persevering. The one who conquers will have this heritage of the new heavens and the new earth. So over the course of today, we've seen God's world made new. We've seen God's removal of suffering and death. We've seen God's covenant fulfilled. We've seen God's people refreshed. All wonderful things to consider as we meditate upon the new heavens and the new earth. But there's one other thing that we have to consider from these verses here, chapter 21, verse 8. And it's what will be happening away from the new heavens and the new earth. It's what will be happening to those who don't conquer and who don't persevere and who don't have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is, friends, that God's, in the future, there will be God's punishment of his enemies. God's punishment of his enemies. Look at verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Strikingly similar lists to that list in chapter 21, verse 8. Strikingly similar lists appear In other places in the New Testament, there's a very similar list to this one right at the end of Revelation 22. Uh, But also uh, uh, a very similar list appears in the writings of Paul, 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9. Paul says, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Of God. And those, those lists are repeated several times, friends, emphasizing to us that people who go on in those sins and do not repent of those sins have no place in the new heavens and the new earth. There are some professing Christians who would claim to you that in the end everyone's going to be together. They give it, give it long enough, and, and God's just going to kind of just soften up and let everybody in. No. Jesus is clear. The epistles are clear. Revelation is clear. These kinds of sins, if unrepented of, will damn you to hell. Notice the the first, we're not going to go through all these words in detail, but notice verse 8, the very first category. As for the cowardly, now, when you think of the kinds of people that will be in hell, you, you maybe don't immediately think of cowards, do you? Um, the rest of the list maybe isn't so surprising. Murderers, you can sort of think, well, yeah. Liars, de- detestable people, but, but cowards? Why, 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 why cowards? Why are they the first on the list? 
Well, again, friends, the the context of Revelation uh, gives us part of the answer. Revelation is written in a time when persecution is growing, when the pressure is building on Christians uh, to continue in the way that they've gone and not to fall away from their faith. And this was an issue in the early church. It remains an issue for the church today. That there are some people who have said they're Christians, some people who their names are on a church roll somewhere, some people who have maybe worked very hard for the church, but then they fall away. And it turns out that they didn't ever have any real faith to begin with. This could be leaders in the church who are more concerned with being popular than being biblical, so they change the message that they preach and they drift further and further away from what is true Orthodox Bible teaching. But this could also just be ordinary people, ordinary church members, who upon facing the pressure from family or from employers, or the temptations to go back to old ways of living, old lifestyles, they fall away. And what the Bible says, friends, about people who said they were Christians and acted like Christians, but when the heat was turned up, turned their back upon being Christians, The Bible says they were never really Christians to begin with and they're cowards. One preacher has said, if you're too afraid to trust in Christ alone, it's the same thing as not believing in him. If you're too afraid to trust in Christ alone, it's the same thing as not believing in him. You remember the rich young man who came running up to Jesus and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And after talking with him, Jesus told him to go off and sell everything he owned and he would have treasure in heaven. Boys and girls, Jesus was not saying that you have to sell everything you have to get into heaven. Jesus was telling this, that particular young man, that he loved the stuff that he had more than he loved Jesus. And If he was to sell the stuff, it would show that he loved something more than he loved his stuff. And that man couldn't do it as far as we can see from the the story. It says that he went away from Jesus sad. Why was he sad, boys and girls? Because he was afraid that following Jesus wouldn't be enough. That it wouldn't be as good as having all the stuff that he had. If you're too afraid to trust in Christ, it's the same thing as not believing in him. And so don't be a coward when it comes to Jesus. I'm sure those of us who are believers this evening, we wouldn't say that we're particularly courageous people. We often don't feel courageous. But at the end of the day, faith takes courage. Courage that God gives us by the power of the Holy Spirit. But it takes courage to believe that the way of Christ and the way of the cross and the way of self-sacrifice and the way of ignoring the, the foolish lies of the world is the way to life. It takes courage to do that. And so don't be too afraid to follow Christ. Believe that he will be better than whatever else the world can offer you. I'll not go through the rest of this list exhaustively. Um, Essentially, this list is describing people who have broken the Ten Commandments. If we, if we went through it in detail, we would see that really it's a description of people who are breaking the, the commandments of God. Uh, you'll no, notice mention of the sexually immoral. Uh, the word there for sexually immoral, it's one word in the Greek. It's used ten times in the New Testament in this form. It means any and every sexual activity outside of heterosexual marriage. Uh, 
It's all sin. You'll also see the word sorcerers there. What does that mean? Does that mean that we're not allowed to read books about wizards and so forth? Uh, I don't think so. The word literally in the original, it means dispenser of potions or dispenser of drugs. And so, of course, there are... um, there are good ways to, there are good jobs that involve dispensing drugs, honourable dro- jobs that require that some people do that. But abusing drugs and, and, and using drugs in, in wicked ways, that's not something that human beings just dreamt up in the past few decades. That's something that's been going on for millennia. And so those who give themselves to the, the experiences of this world in, in wicked and ungodly ways, as well as those who are murderous, those who are deceptive, those who have told lies, those who have committed adultery, whether in their hearts or with their hands. Friends, it's all of us. It's all of us by nature. Jesus made clear in his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, if you've even looked at someone with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. If you've even thought angry, hateful thoughts about someone, You've murdered them in your heart. And so this list covers who all of us are by nature. It's who we are if we remain unrepentant. I quoted from Paul earlier, 1 Corinthians 6, where he has a very similar list to this. And says, such people will not inherit the kingdom of God. But then Paul says, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were justified you were sanctified through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So repent of these things if you're still guilty of them this evening. If you read that verse, Revelation 21 verse 8, and you're convicted, that's me tonight. There's adultery in my life, either in my heart or in my hands. Or there's deception in my life. I'm not being honest about myself or about some matter in my life. Or if I'm immoral in some other way, repent of that sin, friends. Don't, let, don't make excuses. Don't put it off. It will eat away at any sense of assurance you can possibly have that you're headed for heaven. And if it's left unrepented of, verse 8 says that your portion will be the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. We thought about that description a few weeks ago. It is hell. And it is everlasting, conscious torment that's what the fire and the sulfur represent sulfur is a a smell that you just it's overpowering and so horrible that you you just want to escape from it and the reason it's described here is because that's what hell is like something that you want to escape but you can't will you be there or will you be enjoying the wonderful covenantal heritage of the sons of God it all comes down to where you stand with the one that Revelation has been telling us about all the way through where you stand with the Lamb the Lord Jesus Christ John says in one of his letters though you do not see him you love him is that the state of your heart tonight you truly love the Lord Jesus Christ for all that he has done for you And again, whatever else you'll find out about heaven when you get there, you know that you'll be with him and that is all you need to know. And you cannot wait for the eternity that we've been thinking about today. Or 
Are you not yet ready to see the Lamb? Because if you were to see him today, he would have to pour out judgment upon you. Is it going to be the lake or is it going to be the lamb for you? All these other things we thought about today are wonderful, but to simply be with Christ. That's all you really need to know about heaven. Samuel Rutherford, the great Scottish theologian of the 1600s, some of his last words reportedly before he died, some of his last words were glory, glory in Emmanuel's land. And his words were the inspiration for a hymn written many years later by Anne Ross Cousin. Looking forward to the believer's experience of heaven. The last verse of her rhyme declares, I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace, not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hands. The lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. The lamb is all the glory. Will that be your experience, dear friend? Will it be the lake or the lamb for you? He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. These words are trustworthy and true. Amen.